it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Stevie Ray Vaughn is dead and we can't get John Bon Jovi on a helicopter. I am Ben Dominich. I'm happy to be hosting for Guy Benson today, talking to you about all the different things that are going on in the nation's capital and beyond. And I have to say, right off the bat, we are dealing with some insanity when it comes to all of the different issues related to this ridiculous Chinese invasion into our soil, over our soil. And unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of people who just, you know, are totally fine with that. They feel like this is a situation that ought to be just cast aside. You know, nobody should take this all that seriously. We should just assume that, you know, when China sends uh, investigative spy balloons over our capacity to uh, you know, engage in any kind of warfare. That's just totally fine. It's wonderful. We ought to share everything about ourselves. We ought to engage in just a very open, you know, uh, relationship with the Chinese communists. That's not something that I think is very good for America. It's not something that's very good for our future as a country. And unfortunately, I think that's something where the Biden administration is totally engaged in this idea that everything that's going along uh, these lines is acceptable. It's totally fine. It's wonderful. We will be, you know, wonderfully, you know, sort of accepted when it comes to our relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. Look, I want to be clear with you. There is no point where we have any manner of negotiation with the Chinese Communist Party. They are not interested in the future of our nation as anything that ought to exist. They believe that they have, you know, uh, a game up on us in so many different respects. And unfortunately, we are now put in this position where we are up against uh, an administrative state and an elite that believe that they can figure out, navigate, you know, adjudicate this kind of relationship going forward in ways that benefit them and that benefit, frankly, you know, big tech benefit, uh, you know, all sorts of ent- entities that are existing within our universe uh, when it comes to, you know, high end capitalism. Unfortunately, that's not true. It's not true in any respect. And uh, I think that one of the things that we are, we are going to have to deal with going forward is a, uh, a a situation where our elite, when it comes to foreign policy, national security, and the like, is really at odds with what we believe uh, as it relates to uh, you know the American uh, purpose, our you know pursuit of happiness and the like. You know, it it just does not uh, have any kind of coherent relationship with that. They just want to make more money. They're not interested 
in having any kind of relationship that would be beneficial to us and that would be mutually beneficial to them. Instead, you know, we are uh, situated in uh, our own experience here uh, where, you know, we, we just can't trust everything that they're sending our way, whether that relates to, you know, the kind of meetings that we saw in Alaska at the beginning of the uh, Joe Biden term where they were invoking all manner of, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter type of uh, uh, invocations that basically said, you know, oh, America, you can't judge us for eradicating or, you know, engaging in genocide when it comes to all these different people who are underneath our thumb uh, because, you know, you have cops and you arrest black people, and that's not something that you know uh, is is tolerable from our perspective. Look, the Chinese uh, state and everything that is is engaged in is something that we have to view with a very skeptical eye. Something that is engaged in an undermining of the American uh, electorate and the American people. Uh, particularly through, obviously, the uh, experience with TikTok and everything related to that. Uh, I'd like to, you know, engage with one particular person who is very heavily invested in uh, the Chinese approach to the way that we view the world, and that's George Soros. That's Cut 36. DeSantis is shrewd, ruthless, and ambitious. He is likely to be a Republican candidate. This could induce Trump, whose narcissism has turned into a disease, to run as a third-party candidate. That would uh, lead to a Democratic landslide and force the Republican Party to reform itself. But perhaps... I may be just a little bit biased. That's George Soros, uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world, and it's his view of the 2024 presidential context. And, uh, you know, one thing you, you hear from him in that moment is, you know, his denigration of Ron DeSantis as being a cutthroat, someone who is going to cut through all of the different biases, all of the different assumptions when it comes to uh, cultural policy and the like, he's angry about that. He wants to see a scenario where there is something else that emerges from the Republican Party. Unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately, he's going to be somebody who is actually going to have to face the reality of what's going on within the Republican Party, which is that they are prioritizing a lot of these cultural issues above the kind of things that have been uh, taking place in the past, namely the kind of fiscal policies, the kind of reform policies that have been at the forefront within you know a number of different electorates. I mean, particularly, obviously, the, uh, the Paul Ryan sort of era of the Republican Party was one that was engaged in the kind of ideas of, you know, reforming both uh, Medicare and uh, Social Security and the like. Unfortunately for George Soros, 
you know, he now has a number of different uh, Republican candidates who are going to be confronting the kind of, you know, uh, cultural issues that he believes are going to be a danger to his own, you know, globalist agenda. And that includes people like Ron DeSantis who are going to be, you know, unfortunately for him, you know, engaging in these types of, uh, you know, agenda uh, and framing uh, devices that include, you know, the, uh, you know, utter sort of uh, demolishment of the leftist trans agenda that I think, you know, we all know at this point, you know, DeSantis and others are so opposed to. Unfortunately for George Soros, you know, this is something that I think is going to be more of a unanimous uh, position for Republicans across the board. And, you know, as much as, you know, he would like to see this type of thing go away, it's going to be something that I think is omnipresent within the 2024 field. We'll talk a little bit about the Nikki Haley situation, other people who are going to be jumping into this environment. I think it's going to be a very interesting field for a lot of different reasons. But I also think that, you know, when it comes to the appetite of the left, which would like to see these type of cultural issues completely eradicated from the engagement of uh, Republican voters, they are not going to be happy with this situation. They are going to be very disappointed with it because they are going to run into the reality that Americans and the politicians who are going to be competing for their votes are not going to be of the like that basically says this is totally fine to, uh, you know, uh, go along with this woke cultural leftist agenda that has, has in so many ways, you know, uh, devalued our uh, relationships as family and as children. That's something that I think, you know, many Republicans are going to be opposed to in very vociferous ways. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. Happy to be hosting uh, today for him. We'll be back shortly with more. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Nikki Haley is running for president. I don't think that she's going to go that far. Uh, my own opinion is that she's someone who is not uh, really of the moment. She's someone who seems past that moment. Cut 29. Strengthening America, believing once again in America, is the only way to defend ourselves from those who want to destroy us. When America is distracted, the world is less safe. And today our enemies think that the American era has passed. They're wrong. America is not past our prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. She's 100% correct about that. And that's the thing that really bothers me about this. I don't think that Nikki Haley's going anywhere when it comes to the Republican nomination battle. But she has kind of that big issue right when it comes to the you know pathetic nature 
of all the different politicians who are unfortunately still our leadership class at this moment. When Dianne Feinstein comes out and says, you know, I didn't know that they had released that info about me resigning from office. When John Fetterman is being hospitalized because apparently he's incapable of being a senator. I mean, that's something that makes you question so many of the different assumptions that we have when it comes to their ability to translate in any way, you know, uh, uh, a representative uh, form of governance. But, you know, unfortunately, that's the government that we have, and that includes a lot of people who are really out of touch, as indicted by, you know, that great assessment of, uh, you know, American culture, Don Lemon. Let's do that. Cut 27. I think that I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley is in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. What are you that's, talk- not acor- Wait. I, that's not according to me. Prime so for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll. If you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say twenties, thirties, and forties. I don't necessarily. Forties. Oh, I got another. I'm not saying decade. I agree with that. So I think she has to be careful. I don't write the rules, says Don Lemon. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I just Google it. You know, you'll figure it out. <laughs> I mean, come on. This guy is trying to get fired. <laughs> it's clear he's trying to get fired. You know, this is uh, a. I mean, it's a morning show that has been glommed together by CNN and by Chris Licht and by all the different people who are in authority over there. But, like, it's very clear he wants out. He wants out in a bad way, and he is just determined to insult everyone on the way out, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Look, I understand that uh, Poppy Harlow apparently, uh, you know, uh, there are various reports saying that she you know, had to run to the uh, bathroom after this and, and you know, uh, commiserate and, you know, figure out you know, what she was going to do next. You know, look, I mean, come on. This guy is just a jerk. He's, it's not more complicated than that, obviously. Um, you know, look, I, I'm interested in what Nikki Haley is going to do I think that she's going to have, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, some level of impact. Um, But and she's probably going to receive, you know, a lot of criticism from uh, former President Trump in ways that are, you know, pretty negative. And and, and I think we could all, you know, assume uh, what those look like. But I also think that she's someone who has had to weather a lot of that in her past. Look, she's someone who I don't think is going to go that far when it comes to her ability to navigate all the different, you know, political issues, you know, that are in front of her going forward. But I do think that uh, Nikki Haley is not going to be the kind of uh, shrinking violet that a lot of these uh, CNN types apparently think that she is going to be. You know, look. I am from uh, South Carolina. I grew up there. Uh, I grew up in, uh, you know, uh, uh, Charleston specifically. And you can't grow up there without being aware of the kind of challenges that are faced by any politician that comes from there. 
uh, given the history, the challenges that are you know attached to you know Civil War era issues and and the like. Uh, and I think that Nikki Haley has done a good job of navigating a lot of that. Unfortunately, when I uh, when I look at the kind of uh, sphere of the 2024 nomination, I just don't think that those are the kind of issues that are going to animate people going forward. I think that it's more likely that she's going to be facing a lot of insults from former President Trump, uh, a lot of uh, accusations of being a neocon uh, from people who want to see you know a different foreign policy going forward. And also, you know, people who I think, you know, are very committed to the culture war are going to say basically, you know, what have you done for me lately? What is the kind of issue that you have taken a stance on that we can use in terms of our assessment uh, of how devoted you are to these kinds of issues going forward? We'll see how that plays out. Uh, You know, my own perspective is that I think Unfortunately, uh, when it comes to Nikki Haley, she is going to be someone who is viewed as being uh, past her prime, missing the moment, as so many other candidates have historically. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show, um, and I'm happy to be hosting today. I, I want to say to you all that I think that when it comes to this 2024 cycle, we are you know, really facing – a really interesting moment about the future of the Republican Party, about the past of the Republican Party, about what it means for us in so many different respects. Also, I think it's going to be something that determines, you know, for better or for worse, you know, the direction that we have as a cultural movement within society. You know, it's one of these things where, you know, we assess in so many ways, you know, the, the the approach that we have and we assume that there are going to be different people who get what we're trying to achieve. I'm not sure that that's true about the current moment. I think there are a lot of Americans who are trying to figure out what this, you know, Republican Party is all about, what it's trying to achieve. And we have to determine that for them and we have to project that in terms of their identities going forward. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more of The Guy Benson Show right after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's a new generation of talk, and that means Ben Dominich is here in place of Guy Benson. Look, I am just not really happy about what we are seeing here in America today for a number of different reasons, but particularly because, you know, we are looking at 
a group of people who are supposed to lead us, who are supposed to be in charge of things going on around us, who have exposed themselves as being totally incompetent, totally incapable of engaging in any way when it comes to uh, the kind of uh, you know oversight that we would like to see when it comes to you know uh, not just you know Chinese balloons and the like, but also I mean these dreaded you know four uh, H fair level balloons, you know these uh, people who are sending things up, you know with uh, <laughs> the the investment of uh, you know their various uh, you know hometown uh, commercial type of approaches to uh, balloons going up. Unfortunately, apparently, we have been investing massive amounts of money in shooting those down. <coughs> you know, and I, I just think that that's something that is really pathetic in a lot of different ways. I mean, you know, you would like to see, you know, uh, American uh, individuals invested more in, you know, making something that would be able to withstand the kind of attention that we would see, uh, you know, from uh, the American U.S. Air Force. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, look, I am really depressed about this. I mean, it's really sad. You know, it, it sets America back in so many different ways. I'm happy to have, you know, as our guest right now, uh, Matt McDonald, to uh, help me through all of this. You know, Matt. I'm just really depressed. I feel like, you know, Americans <coughs> really ought to be delivering a better class of balloon when it comes to withstanding the kind of effects that we might see from the American U.S. Air Force. Um, hello, Ben. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I am inclined to agree. We, we're talking about uh, the quality of the American balloon uh, versus Chinese balloons. Is that is that right? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm surprised to, that we've not uh, heard anything back about, uh, you know, China shooting down any of our balloons, which we're floating over there. Uh, it seems seems uh, surprising that, you know, we're not engaged in a, a kind of tete-a-tete of, of balloon, balloon and balloon warfare. <laughs> so, uh, Matt, I believe that you are about to go up and, and assess – one per, one particular person who is uh, in, invested in this 2024 cycle, uh, Nikki Haley, what are you looking at in terms of, of her potential sort of launch within the New Hampshire environment? Sure. Um, well, to, to tie, you know, what you're just talking about more directly to Nikki Haley, obviously one of the main selling points which she's trying to put across on a national level as she launches her presidential campaign is uh, her foreign policy credentials, obviously having served as UN ambassador in the Trump administration. In her launch speech that she gave in Charleston this week, uh, she, she, one of her quotes that she said is, in, in how in communist China we face the strongest and most disciplined enemy in history. Um, you know, the choice, of, uh, the choice of words there, you know, referring to China straight out of the gate as an enemy is, um, you know, an intriguing, an intriguing one. Uh, for a presidential candidate to kind of enter the fray when obviously if you'll end up being the sitting president in 2024, you're potentially going to have to go into meetings with Xi, right? And uh, and therefore be addressing and uh, speaking with him from a diplomatic standpoint um, when you've, you know, referred to him 
as or referred to China as an enemy. Obviously, with President Biden, he had a similar issue where he's referred to Vladimir Putin as a killer. And then that became uh, a bit of a talking point when, you know, he got to the end of the, the road, was president, and then has to meet with Putin and, you know, negotiate with him. Um, but uh, I think with Nikki Haley up in New Hampshire, it's, it's going to be an interesting... Uh, it'll be interesting to see how she tries to sell herself because obviously she has oscillated mm-hmm. quite a lot uh, as a public figure in the last 10 years. You know, she became governor uh, down in South Carolina in 2011. Uh, she kind of was probably mostly nationally prominent in that time for the 2015 decision to change the state flag uh, and drop the Confederate, uh, the Confederate emblem from their state flag. Um, and so, you know, was kind of there was a moderate appeal there, which then she kind of undercuts uh, by accepting a position in the Trump administration, having endorsed two of his uh, primary opponents in 2016. She endorsed Rubio and then she went on to endorse uh, Ted Cruz. So it was basically, you know, she was almost anyone but Trump until Trump was the only option. And then she's, you know, very vocally backed him in 20 in 2016. Uh, since leaving the administration in in 2018, she's again, you know, tried to pivot back. Has released a uh, released a book, tried to you know fill out more of a kind of national persona where she appeals to more moderates uh, rather than strictly to the Republican base. And so then she finds herself in an interesting position where her launch speech that she gave in Charleston, you know, she echoed a lot of that in uh, ex New Hampshire a town hall. Last night, I'm going to another town hall in Manchester, just up the road uh, this evening, where, you know, she's she's pitching this uh, moderate uh, national kind of Republican candidate uh, stance where she wants to uh, kind of appeal to as many people as possible and seem like a normal Republican, seem like the drama of the Trump era is behind her. But then obviously she's entering a Republican primary. Um, yeah, I mean, how much how much do you think that, <laughs> that she's going to be capable in terms of navigating that reality, given that there are so many pressures, you know, involved when it comes to <laughs> figuring out where you are on the spectrum, you know, uh, versus kind of an anti-Trump position versus a pro-Trump position? Right. Well, I think most people anticipate the Republican primary to be a, a straight, you know, boxing match between Trump and DeSantis. The way that the polling is going at the moment, it, they are the, clear, the two clear favorites. Um, and, you know, DeSantis, as a, you know, as far as the portfolio goes, uh, Haley and DeSantis have got similar resumes as far as being, you know, effective governors of southeastern uh, states. Um, DeSantis is fresher in people's memory because he's currently the governor. He's just won re-election. He uh, and you know he was the governor throughout the pandemic. Whereas Haley's period as governor was over, you know, uh, in 2017, right? So her, the challenge uh-huh. is just that she faced as governor entirely different. That was more about the you know the economic bounce back in that period. So um, she, she's walking a tightrope, right? Um, New Hampshire is an interesting state in which to do that because obviously it's got two blue senators. It's uh, got a libertarian streak by its nature. Uh, it's got a Republican governor, who also, Chris Sununu, who also may potentially enter the race as another you know, moderate candidate. Um, with Haley, I, I kind of think Haley's in a sort of a similar position to Sununu, where there's a number of these kind of uh, you know, second-tier Republican candidates, potentially, who, who, are, who think Trump and DeSantis will just slog it out against each other 
uh, people will get fatigued and then maybe that'll leave lead a lane in the middle for uh, another candidate to sweep in and steal it, which I think Larry Hogan, the governor, you know, outgoing governor of Maryland, said something to that effect on Fox News last month. The, the thing is, yeah. that sounds an awful lot like what everyone said in 2016 when the Republican field was phenomenally crowded and, you know, the party establishment uh, failed to kind of unite around an alternative to Trump, which is why Trump ended up being the candidate, in, among other things. You know, there was an interesting piece uh, in Unheard uh, the other day that sort of criticized <laughs> Nikki Haley as being kind of a stalking horse for neoconservatism. Do you view her within that capacity? Um, well, it's interesting. You've got the Nikki Haley that that, uh, that she's selling you as a candidate, and then you've got the Nikki Haley as a background. So in her initial uh you know, announcement speech in Charleston, she talked about she's trying to paint herself as like an outsider candidate. Like her, as far as elected office goes, being governor, of, she's, she only held state roles. She was a state senator in South Carolina and went from that to being the South Carolina governor, which therefore means that she can try and hold Washington at arm's length, right? So she can basically say like the D.C. swamp uh, is its own thing and I'm not a yeah. part of all the self-dealing and uh, lobbying and skullduggery of, of, uh, of Washington. Um, she obviously then, you know, the, the other role that she took was in New York, not necessarily a much better city for skullduggery than D.C. is. Um, <laughs> but then the, 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 the issue has been, you know, during her time in the Trump administration, uh, her time as governor and her time since, she is remarkably popular in D.C. among the D.C. donor class and among the D.C. think tank class. Like, I can remember... Uh, seeing her give a flagship address at like an American Enterprise Institute dinner uh, attended by huge numbers of these, uh, you know, the Republican congressmen and uh, you the know, swamp. Holders who, exactly. It's, it, 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 you can't get much more swampy than a, than a, than a D.C. black tie dinner, which she's the keynote speaker. So I don't think it's going to be that hard to portray her as part of that uh, self-same establishment, just given... Uh, the people, the kind of uh, people who are likely to back her. Mm-hmm. Look, one last question. I think that one of the things that we, you know, look at with all of these different candidates is how they are going to be able to navigate the Trump phenomenon, how much attack they are going to get from him, uh, and you know, when it comes to Nikki Haley, you know, she's had a few different, you know, uh, initial onslaughts, let's say that they're relatively kind compared to the approach that uh, Trump usually has. Do you think that she's going to be able to navigate the kind of, you know, blowback that, you know, Trump will give her if she has any kind of success within this environment? Yeah, I think, you know, Trump's reserving most of his eye for DeSantis at the moment because DeSantis poses significantly more of a threat, which is why, you know, DeSantis is on the receiving end of, you know, ludicrous uh, allegations on Truth Social from the former from the former <laughs> president. Uh, I think maybe he, Trump is being a bit smarter with Nikki Haley in that he, perhaps he hasn't completely ruled out the possibility that she could be a good vice president if she gathers momentum and interest in, you know, the 2024 race. It's like, it's possible that Nikki, you know, Nikki Haley appeals to a different type of voter, a different type of, you know, Republican sympathetic voter than Donald Trump does. And if you're trying to unite that in a ticket, maybe... He's, maybe he's being more reserved because, uh, you know, out of strategic. Though, you know, Donald Trump isn't necessarily the greatest strategic mind of the of the tw- of 21st century politics. It's also possible he just doesn't see her as a threat at all 
uh, and mm. she's not even she's not even registering on his radar. I gather, you know, he he stuck out an email blast uh, about the real Nikki, Nikki Haley the the day that she entered the race. He said that he was, you know, welcoming the the competition. I think he's going to, you know, if they end up facing each other in a debate, he will bring up the fact that she said she wasn't going to run, and yet now is. So how can you hold her at her word? Um, but, you know, it's extremely early days. We're probably a full year from the start of the New Hampshire primary. I think people uh, up here uh, in, in New England are even tentative about the fact that the, the race is starting this early. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to go down there tonight, hear what voters have actually got to say and kind of see, watch her sort of road test her material, workshop it, work out which tracks uh, work and which to save for the encore. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting and exciting time to be up here in New Hampshire. I wish you the best of luck. Matt McDonald uh, from The Spectator, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Thanks, Ben. I'm Ben Dominic. You're listening to another edition of the Guy Benson Radio Show. Happy to be with you today talking about all the different issues that are confronting us in American politics. And we will be back shortly right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. And Americans are done. They're tired. They're done. They want term limits. They want mandatory um, testing for people over the age of 75 for competency. They want to know that we're going to start getting D.C. in shape. I never was in Washington. I want to go in and do exactly what I did at the U.N., which is start to let them know what the American people expect of them, not the other way around. Nikki Haley talking about the situation as it relates to American politics. I I mean, I have to agree with every different aspect of that. I mean, we we are facing a scenario in American politics where we have so many different people who are well past the point where they can be trusted when it comes to assessing what's going on around them. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean about this, but I mean, you know, have you seen the reports about people like Dianne Feinstein who had to be told that they had resigned, who had to be told that they had been voting one way or the other? Look, I mean, that's just not sustainable, but that's the leadership class that we are dealing with. She's 89. Obviously, Joe Biden is about to become, you know, the oldest president that we've ever had. We are also going to face, you know, uh, the oldest leadership that we've ever had in so many different respects when it comes to the Congress. I mean, that includes people like Chuck Schumer. It includes people like Nancy Pelosi, who, you know, may not formally be in charge anymore, but she is in terms of the way that she has impact on this whole discussion. Look, we are dealing with a group of people who have, you know, renegotiated uh, and adjudicated all these different amounts of money toward themselves, toward their own generation, in ways that are deeply disturbing. And yet, you know, we're stuck with it. We're stuck with this reality where, you know, uh, we have to just assume that this is the way things go. I don't think that that should be the case. I think that we should be ready to reject all of that 
in so many different respects. We should be ready to reject the idea that we have to assume that these people are just, you know, the people in charge of us. It's unfortunate. It's sad. And I don't really want to see it continue. But I do think it's going to continue until the American people actually have uh, the gall to stand up for themselves, to reject what's being put upon us, and to basically say, no, we want to have a new generation of leadership. We will see you know, what that looks like going forward. I don't think that it's going to be something that happens overnight. But I do think that it's something that's going to continue to grow in terms of an interest group in America. It's going to be a lot of people who basically say, look, you know, I, I love my grandparents. I love my grandparents, and I love uh, the way that they, you know, help uh, my kid. I love the way that they, you know, help my society. But I'm not going to pretend for one second that they're the kind of people who I want to be balancing the books, adjudicating all the differences, you know, and essentially, you know, guiding the way forward that we have as a country. And that's something that I think is only going to continue to be more true going forward. I'm Ben Dominic. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. We'll be back with more right after this. Conventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show. It is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Ben Dominic, your guest host for today. I am not fresh. I'm not unconventional. I'm very conventional. I'm very throwback. I'm very angry about the things that are going on in our world today. And one of those is the invasion of our shared media conversation by a number of different entities that it turns out are taxpayer funded. Joining me now, uh, Gabe Kaminsky, who is an investigative reporter at the Washington Examiner, who has been unveiling over the course of a number of different reports in the last week, the degree to which that we have seen a uh, investment on the part of the State Department and other uh, major taxpayer-funded entities in undermining the very conversation that you are probably very familiar with within uh, conservative commentary uh, and entities across the web. Gabe, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Hey, Ben. Good to be with you. So tell me a little bit, uh, first off, uh, frame this for us uh, about what you discovered when you started to look into what was going on when it came to the undermining of a lot of different American uh, entities within the kind of center-right ecosphere of journalism. Yeah, so so what we uncovered, for starters, is that 
There are several organizations, particularly one called the Global Disinformation Index, and these organizations are aiming to track what they determine to be disinformation online. And so they are feeding, they're compiling uh, secret blacklists of conservative websites that they view as the biggest peddlers of disinformation and feeding those to advertising companies with the intent of getting them to, uh, you know, defund and, and deplatform uh, speech that they disagree with. Uh, and so we learned the Washington Examiner that we were we're one outlet that has been blacklisted um, through this, and, and several others. Uh, the Global Disinformation Index they they rank the ten riskiest outlets as places like Newsmax, The Daily Wire, uh, Real Clear Politics, uh, The American Spectator. Uh, you know, many many center right and maybe more to the right outlets. Uh, so that was, that was kind of the first piece that we uncovered, and, and then we learned that the State Department has funded the Global Disinformation Index. So tell me a little bit about this uh, Global Disinformation Index, the DDI, and uh, you know what its task is, and also what kind of funding it's receiving, both from these uh, you know uh, various government entities, but obviously from uh, American taxpayers. Yeah, so Global Disinformation Index, we, we tried to publish an explainer uh, two days ago on this. And, you know, the, the topic of disinformation, normal, you know, normal people would just think that means information that is fraudulent, information that is objectively false. And there are certainly websites uh, on the Internet that publish overtly false information. Global Disinformation Index, they, they say that they view disinformation through something called an adversarial lens, uh, adversarial relationship. And so it, what they've essentially done is they, they say that disinformation is certain, certain viewpoints that challenge certain narratives that they say undermine democratic institutions. But in that case, what this has resulted in, in their, in their view, uh, so they, they've been flagging opinion articles of disinformation. Uh, so several commentary pieces in the Washington Examiner studying social, even a, a study that one of my colleagues wrote uh, uh, that uh, he, he wrote about a study on conservative and men and women on average being uh, happier than liberal men and women. That was that was dinged as misogynistic disinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh so essentially, they're fl- they're flagging opinion articles, and and in terms of that funding, then it's come from two entities: one one the Global Engagement Center, which is uh, a State Department grant making body, and they've granted a hundred thousand dollars to the Global Disinformation Index, and that's again those those are taxpayer dollars. Uh, the other entity is the National Endowment for Democracy, a a nonprofit that was authorized through Congress, and that is. Uh, funded almost entirely through uh, congressional appropriations. And that amount was uh, $315,000 in 2021 and $230,000 in 2020. So, um, Gabe, how can we have any kind of confidence going forward that any of this is going to change? I mean, a lot of Americans, I think, are very concerned about what they've seen looking backward when it comes to, you know, the – influence that the government has had, but they don't have a lot of confidence going forward. 
Is there any kind of indication that something about this is going to change? Yeah, and that's, yeah, I mean, we've heard in recent days uh, there are a lot of concern among Americans who, you know, are reading this series and concerned about uh, not being able to access the outlets that they like to read because um, of censorship. And, you know, we, we in recent days, uh, there have been a lot of Republican lawmakers who have been raising concerns over the blacklist and particularly the State Department funding. Uh, and it obviously remains to be seen, you know, the level of investigation. But uh, yesterday, Representatives Jim Jordan and Matt Gates both said they vow uh, to investigate uh, the State Department funding through the mm -hmm. Weaponization Subcommittee, uh, a new, you know, subcommittee through Congress. We've also heard in recent days from uh, Senators Ron Johnson, Marco Rubio, uh, Marsha Blackburn, uh, really, really a whole swath of Republican lawmakers and, you know, in, on various committees such as Oversight Committee, Judiciary Committee. Um, and again, you know, they, they've weighed in, but um, it, it certainly remains to be seen the level to which they can they can properly hold the State Department accountable. And I will say that the House Foreign Affairs Committee could appear to be a proper place for this because they oversee State Department funding and uh, – uh, last year, their chairman, Representative Michael McCall, voted to not reauthorize the Global Engagement Center, uh, which is the grant-making body that gave the money to the Global Disinformation Index. Hmm. Look, uh, I think this is all very interesting. I hope that, uh, unfortunately, you know, we are up against you know a real dominant uh, force when it comes to the ability of the existing you know. Uh, uh, various people to exact their uh, performative narrative against the American people. Um, but I think that what you've done here is very valuable in terms of reporting out this story, making it known for the American people, and making clear to them, uh, you know, that we are engaged in a number of different people who are unfortunately totally opposed to having any kind of freedom of speech. Gabe, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Ben. You know, I I am really, you know, uh, very disappointed to learn that we are engaged in the kind of conflict that I think we are seeing today. You know, there, there are all these different entities that are out there who are, you know, saying that they are trying to prevent uh, disinformation, misinformation, you know, the like from, uh, you know, in, engaging with us as American citizens. But unfortunately, it turns out that they are really people who are, you know, totally opposed to us having any kind of conversation that they view as being inappropriate, at odds with their performative narrative and the like. Um, unfortunately, I think that's something that we're going to be experiencing time and again. And, you know, I wish it was going to be something that was different. But, you know, when I look out at this potential 2024 field, including Nikki Haley, including Donald Trump, including a lot of these other folks, you know, I think that they are going to all have to confront this very directly, uh, making it clear the position that they hold. And uh, the attitude they have, you know, when it comes to uh, the, you know, politics of our current moment. Look, I mean, it's not ideal 
And we all could wish that this was something where, you know, th- this was uh, a, a set-aside issue. We were talking about tax levels and, you know, regulatory issues, things that did not matter as much to the essential nature of humanity. But unfortunately, that is the kind of uh, issue that we are confronting. And unfortunately, it's going to be something that I think is at the center of the 2024 cycle. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to the Guy Benson uh, radio show. I'm very happy to be hosting today and to be talking to you about a lot of different issues that I think are front of mind for so many different American people. We'll be back with more right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. And we're back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host for today, Ben Dominich. And uh, we are talking about a number of different critical issues that are facing Americans today. One in particular, I think, is is distrust when it comes to our federal government. One that is exacerbated by the playing out of this entire uh, catastrophe as it relates to this train derailment in Ohio. Let's do cut 12. I think that there is a complete refusal to deal with the fact that a lot of residents are freaked out on the ground. Uh, Obviously, people want to get back to their lives. They also want to know that they're safe. And the thing that's very clear, if you talk to the EPA, if you talk to the CDC, they cannot tell us what a clean threshold is for the water. So on the one hand, you have to measure the water to know how much of this contaminant is in it. On the other hand, you have to know at what level the contaminant is low enough that it's clean water, that it's safe for humans to drink. We've been completely unable to get a good answer from any federal authorities to that question. And if I can't get that answer, and I'm a United States senator, uh, that suggests that the people of East Palestine who want to be cautious have every right to do it. Look, I th- I think that when J.D. Vance is expressing this kind of frustration, obviously the newly elected senator from Ohio, that is also something that is being felt by a lot of people who are not in his position of power. But look, I mean, when, when you look at this East Palestine uh, situation, you have to say, as much as you would like to have faith in all of the different people who are in charge of us, people who, you know, we are invested in as being, you know, leaders of our nation, uh, people who we have confidence in when it comes to environmental regulation and protection. Look, this is all falling apart in ways that are really deeply disturbing in lots of ways. And unfortunately, I think it is uh, indicative of a leadership class that has been very unwilling historically to be honest with the American people, something that we saw repeatedly during the entire conflagration over COVID. Let's do cut 20, uh, cut 13. Would you drink the water here? Yes. You would? I'm drinking it right now because it's been tested and we have all the results back today. We've tested it for all the potential contaminants. You guys personally did testing? 
we work with the contractor, but the county health department personally did testing as well. Then why are the fish dying in the creeks? We're talking about the drinking water. The drinking water is groundwater from a system about a mile away. So you're not concerned about the creek water possibly leaking into the groundwater? There's no cross-contamination We are evaluating all. We're getting more data on the streams. We are testing. If like a child were to go and play in the creek, do you think that that would be a harmful issue for them? I, until we have more information about what is in the streams, I wouldn't recommend people play in the creek. I mean, listen to that. That's obviously, you know, a bureaucrat trying to navigate the reality of what's going on around them, you know, pretending as much as they can to, uh, you know, investigate this or, or approach it as being an issue where they have some kind of correction. But the reality is we're dealing with a lot of people who just don't know what's going on. And unfortunately, I think this is true time and again when it comes to the American experience. There are people who uh, try to maintain their own you know, perspective, try to maintain their own uh, appeal uh, without any kind of negativity. But at the deep down, at you know, when you cut through all of the BS, what you learn is that they just don't know more about what's going on than anybody else. I think that's really disturbing. I think that Americans think that's really disturbing. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are generally, you know, really frustrated with the scenario that's right in front of us. Look, I have, you know, a belief that it would be good for us as Americans to have confidence in the people who are representing us, who are engaged in these types of issues and confronting them on a day-to-day basis. But when they don't, I think that we need to be able to raise the questions, ask them, demand answers, and move forward from there. We'll see what happens when it comes to Ohio and this horrible situation there, which has unfortunately resulted in, I think, a very high level of distrust for our American regulatory state, uh, particularly the EPA, obviously, but also the you know so many other departments that deserve to be distrusted uh, given their scenario. But we will see what happens. I'm Ben Dominich, and you are listening to uh, the uh, Guy Benson Show. I'm really happy to be hosting today. It's it's uh, you know a pleasure obviously, to uh, be able to talk to you on a week in which so many different, you know, issues have been raised in front of the American people. I think that this is one of the most paramount. It's something that is disturbing in a sense. We wish that we had the kind of leadership that we could have faith in, the kind of leadership that would be indicative of trust Unfortunately, that's just not the case. We have a leadership that is more invested in craziness, in uh, you know, uh, a purposeless 
animosity, the kind of partisan approach that we have come to expect from them. We need to demand more. We need to demand better. I'm Ben Dominich, and we will be back with more right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. And we're back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host for today, Ben Dominich. Hey, look, I mean, you know, if you think that's country music, that's fine. I'm not going to judge you. I am going to judge you. That's not country music. Um, I am interested in what's going on when it comes to the White House's denial uh, on all of these different uh, aerial floating devices Things that have been shot down at great expense, uh, you know, across the country because of the concerns raised by that Chinese uh, spy balloon that floated all across uh, the uh, 48 United States. Let's go to uh, a number of cuts from Joe Biden, who's been trying to explain what's going on here. Let's start with 18. I gave the order to shoot it down as soon as it would be safe to do so. The military advised against shooting it down over land because of the sheer size of it. It was the size of multiple school buses and opposed a risk to people on the ground if it was shot down where people lived. Instead, we tracked it closely. We analyzed its capabilities and we learned more about how it operates. And because we knew its path, we were able to protect sensitive sites against collection. That's you 20 and 21. I want to be clear. We don't have any evidence that there has been a sudden increase in the number of objects in the sky. We're now just seeing more of them partially because the steps we've taken to increase our radars, to narrow our radars. That's and we a have lie. to keep adapting our approach to uh, delaying, to dealing with these challenges. In addition, we've directed my national security advisor to lead a government-wide effort to make sure we are positioned to deal safely and effectively with the objects in our airspace. That's also a lie. First, we will establish a better inventory of unmanned airborne objects in space above the United States airspace and make sure that inventory is accessible and up to date. Look, this is a guy who doesn't understand what's going on talking about that uh, in front of us, trying to maintain that he knows what's going on. And, uh, you know, look, I mean, what are you going to get out of that? Uh, a guy who sounds like an old person who is out of touch and is trying to just kind of, you know, dance out there, you know, spin all the plates, make things sound like they're okay. The reality, of course, if you paid any attention to this, is that we are dealing with a circumstance where, you know, the United States just got caught, you know, unprepared for what was going to happen to them. And that includes, obviously, you know, a uh, spy balloon that uh, floated across the United States, but it also includes a number of other different, you know, ways of penetrating uh, our understanding of, of what's going on around us. You know, the White House would be well off at this point 
to try to lean into the idea that they are going to support, say, you know, the the forced sale uh, or the undermining of uh, TikTok. Unfortunately, that's not something that they have engaged with. Instead, what we hear from them is essentially, look, this is not a big deal. Something that happens all the time, you know, uh, if a balloon got knocked off course, we'll figure that out with the Chinese. There is no assumption of any kind of negative intent. And look, that just it doesn't pass the smell test at all. Um, it doesn't, you know, make uh, for any kind of situation where we can have faith in this president and uh, those around him. Why? What do you think about this? Yeah, I mean this this whole situation where you, we were talking about it all week on the show, and guy had me on earlier on Monday to break it all down with all these objects everywhere and. You know, there's been more and more reporting about what these objects could have been, what they were, and you know, it seems now it's more likely that some of these balloon that they, that they were possibly balloons and that they were hobby balloons mm. and that they were not, in fact, any sort of military balloon or device or craft. Why, why did you ever send up a uh, a uh, model rocket or anything like that when you were a kid? Yeah, I, I mean that's kind of something that some kids do. And if you're in like science class or you know, it... you you could admit you're a nerd. <laughs> I assume you're a nerd. I am a nerd. I I uh, sent many model rockets up uh, with uh, you know uh, little parachutes and various things. Um, but obviously, you know when those go up. You don't expect them to be categorized in any way as being, you know, dangers to, uh, you know, the U.S. situation when it comes to foreign policy or security or the like. Yeah, no, for sure. And and like I said, I think the, the, the lack of information on this has been very bewildering to a lot of people just trying to understand what these were. I mean, you had the, the United States military shooting these things down on American uh, you know, airspace, which is pretty unprecedented to to say the least, and using very very expensive uh, rockets to shoot <laughs> these things down. I mean, they weren't attached with warheads, but they were. You know, uh, they were missiles, and they were shooting these things down. And the fact that we don't still have any information on recovery of any of these uh, objects is, you know, pretty pretty crazy at this point. We're now. A week from the first shootdown in Alaska, and we don't know anything about it or where it was, where it came from, you know, other than that there is some some back talk from sources in the White House saying that this can be, you know, very, uh, you know, just a balloon for recreational use, yeah. but no definitive hard concrete answers on any of this. Look, I mean, how are we supposed to think about this? It's one of these situations where you like – I mean – you look at the real ramifications of, say, you know, a Chinese balloon that, uh, you know, has come across the waters that you do not, you know, like to be there. You don't appreciate the invasion of privacy, but you also don't necessarily assume that it knows anything about you um, that is, uh, you know, all that dangerous. You know, and one of the things that I think is is – you know, frustrating about this is that, you know, we have really reached a point within the American experience where 
you know, lots of people basically say, just, you know, it's fine. Just assume it. It's it's there. It's omnipresent. Um, and that's particularly true, obviously, of TikTok. Um, and, but also of other entities that invade American life, uh, invade the way that we live together. And we are supposed to just sort of essentially assume everything's okay. You know, it's just that's the way things work. Um, unfortunately, you know, I think that that's, a, you know, a situation that is conceding far too much about the way that we ought to live and, you know, giving up too much when it comes to any kind of faith in, you know, preventing the invasion that we have experienced from uh, Chinese society. Is there any way to sort of turn this, uh, you know, conversation about this balloon and everything that, you know, is attached to it around to basically say, hey, look, this is an indication that we shouldn't just assume everything is okay and everything is benign when it comes to the invasion of our lives by the Chinese communists. Yeah. I mean, this, there's been speculation, obviously that these other devices were from China. The only confirmed report of something that's definitely from China is now the balloon that we know have traversed over the United continental United States um, and was shot down in the, off the coast of South Carolina. And supposedly as of yesterday, um, the the Chinese balloon, the recovery efforts to get all the devices and the technology that was on board, which was part of the reason why they shot it down over the water as opposed to over land, was they said their thinking was that they could recover more from a, a water impact as opposed to a ground land impact over the continental U.S. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was either today or yesterday where they came out and said that they have recovered significant amounts of the rest of this this uh, you know the spy structure that was attached under the balloon, and so all that that technology and whatever was recovered left has now been sent to uh, Virginia and is now being you know looked at the FBI lab to see what you know technology was on board and what they were were doing. And there were reports that some of that technology on board was able to you know interfere with um, you know cell phone communications. They were able to tap into certain things. There were reports of that, and a, a lot of it remains unknown of what was actually going on over the skies of North America when, when that balloon was traversed. And Chinese said, hey, this was a uh, a balloon that was sent up by uh, civilians in the mm-hmm. country, which is very, very hard to believe. And they said it was a weather balloon that was blown off course and just so happened to fly it was over. a weather balloon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just – it was – just so happened to fly over nuclear, you know, missile sites and and different. Oh, look what it did by accident! Exactly. Hey, hey New York, can I get uh, cut twenty four? The response there, in keeping with today's remarks, sort of two weeks after the fact, um, highlighted how botched the response was from the get go. Because if you recall, the president, on the very first day that the Chinese spy balloon was spotted over U.S. airspace, ordered the military. He told us, the American people, he ordered them to shoot it down. But his military advisors didn't want to do that. Uh, they advised him against it, and they stuck with that. It turns out that the president's gut instinct was actually correct. They probably should have shot it down the very first day that they saw it. Those remarks today, um, he concluded them by saying, I'm not going to, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not going to apologize right. for shooting it down, which I found to be a very weirdly telling statement because... Uh, nobody 
was asking him to apologize for shooting <laughs> the balloon down. Nobody has even been publicly critical of the decision to shoot the balloon down. That's Jillian Turner with her normal insight into the behind-the-scenes motivations of what's actually going into these various statements. Look, I think that there is a lot of frustration within this White House about how this decision played out, uh, what was going to happen in terms of the ramifications of any decision. And unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of people who right now you know, have to be, you know, reconsidering the approach that they used uh, when it came to this balloon and whether they enabled a Chinese approach that unfortunately, you know, puts us in a very bad position when it comes to all of our negotiations going forward. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. I'm happy to be with you today uh, to talk about all these different issues. I think that, you know, really when you uh, drill right down to it. Joe Biden and his uh, various teams of people within the State Department and elsewhere are really behind the eight ball when it comes to so many different issues that they need to be dealing with. Whether you are a Democrat or a Republican or an independent or something else, you have to be disappointed with the approach that they have used to date. I'm Ben Namanech. We'll be back with more right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. All right, we are back. I'm Ben Domenech. Happy to be hosting for Guy Benson today. Uh, you know, look, I I know that we have been dealing with all sorts of ridiculousness from the Joe Biden White House. The way that they've been dealing with, you know, uh, the questions, the valid questions from a number of different people within the press corps has just been abhorrent. You know, frankly, they have been you know, avoiding them. They've been denying them. They've been pretending like what they are asking is just out of sorts and, uh, you know, something that's inappropriate in one way or the other. When we all know that's just not the case. Cut 23. There's been criticism that this was. There's been criticism that this. Sir, Mr. President, Mr. President, there has been criticism. Mr. President, there has been criticism that this was an overreaction that was done because of political pressure. You turn my off and ask the question. We have more polite people. Look, so you may not know my history. I am somebody who. Uh, worked as a Senate staffer back in the day, back in the mid-2000s. Got to know Joe Biden a little bit. And one of the things that you know about him and that every member of the Senate uh, grew to know about him is that he's somebody who just deflects these kinds of questions by pretending that they are out of sorts, that they are, you know, not something that is within the bounds of, of normal discussion. He pretends like they are invented, that they are fabulous. We all know that that's just not the case. The simple fact is that uh, Joe Biden has been dodging questions about his relationship with the Chinese, uh, whether it becomes uh, you know, uh, necessary to define their relationship according to 
corporate Chinese, uh, you know, operations or the CCP as a government entity, uh, you know, that's something that still is very much, uh, you know, in the open discussion. But his rejection of any kind of question about this is an indication of how inauthentic he is going to be, how inauthentic he's going to proceed to be in so many different respects. Look, Joe Biden can do whatever he wants when it comes to rejecting these types of questions, but they will dog him for the rest of his life, including beyond the point where he is president. There seems to be an attitude on his part and on the part of his family that his presidency is going to basically end any of these questions. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I think that it's going to be a situation where all these questions are redoubled, all these questions are boosted, all these questions are part of the assessment of his legacy going forward. And they deserve to be. Because, you know, frankly, for all of the ridiculousness that we had to withstand when it came to the relationship between former President Donald Trump and Russia, we have very clear violations of the norms of American politics when it comes to the relationship between the Biden family and the Chinese government and their various backed corporate entities. And those questions are questions that deserve to be answered. I'm Ben Nominich. You're listening to the uh, Guy Benson Show. I'm happy to be with you today to deal with all of these questions, to run into all of different scenarios. From my perspective, I think that they're one of the you know real uh, tests of the kind of corruption that we are willing to tolerate in American society today. Unfortunately, I think that there's far too many Americans who are willing to go just go along with that idea to assume that that's the norm and to just you know uh, make their own uh, consolation prize when it comes to the kind of assessment that we, that they deserve as American citizens and uh, as people who you know frankly ought to know more about what our president, our leadership class is really engaged in when it comes to foreign entities. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more right after this. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. I'm Ben Dominich, happy to be hosting for Guy Benson today. I wish that Washington, D.C. was not the most powerful city in the world. It's a garbage city with garbage people, full of swamp creatures, terrible in every respect. Uh, One of those people who was not uh, part of that, thankfully, is Dr. Mark Siegel, who is joining me today 
Uh, he is the author of COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science, Fox News medical correspondent. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Great to be on with you, Ben. Really good I am you. very concerned, uh, and I think that there are a lot of Americans who are concerned, uh, including those who are obviously in the wonderful Keystone State of Pennsylvania, but also Americans across the country, about the plight of one John Fetterman, the uh, senator from Pennsylvania, duly elected in this last midterm election, a, a critical race, and also one that included all types of ups and downs when it came to uh, the medical situation of the candidate. I think that a lot of us are concerned about him and not out of any kind of, you know, real, you know, aggressive partisanship, but it just seems very unseemly to have the kind of experience that he is going through when it comes to depression, when it comes to his own recovery from his stroke. Tell us what you think about his own situation and his recovery and mental health treatment at this time. I think we should put it in context of a couple of other senators. Diane Feinstein, who doesn't seem to remember that she said she was retiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator Casey, who just had prostate surgery or is having it. And by the way, if, if the prostate, this is this is kind of inside baseball, and, and I don't mean that I know what's happening with him, but if you're operating on a prostate, it's generally because you think you can cure it. So he may actually be back at work in a week or two. So that versus Feinstein versus now Fetterman, that's how I look at it. Of course, with Fetterman, we need to show a lot of compassion here because it's somebody who survived a major stroke, has major heart disease, and is trying to trying to regain a normal life. I mean, a super normal life. United States Senate could be seen as an inspiration to some. And not only that, his disclosure that he's being admitted to the hospital for clinical depression uh, is is from a purely medical point of view. And I'll get to the medical political in a minute. Purely medical point of view, Ben, it, it, it says to me that I can use that to teach the public that, by the way, depression is extremely common after a big mm-hmm. stroke for a couple of reasons. Yeah. The brain chemistry has changed, and you're, you, you, you don't feel up to the task. You feel diminished and limited. 100%. You know, all of all of that is, but and the treatment's complicated, and people tend to understate these things when they have the stroke. They think it's the stroke and it's depression, but being hospitalized for clinical depression is a big deal when you think about it, because you could treat most of the time outside the hospital. If you're being admitted, that's a big deal. And so the next question is for the voters of Pennsylvania. You know, he was hospitalized last week for dizziness. Now he's being hospitalized for clinical depression. I mean, he already was using a lot of visual and auditory aids. We don't know to what extent he was actually up to able to perform the job before. I have serious concerns about this, and I think fitness for office is a, is a legitimate, legitimate question. And I think that that's something that's, you know, I mean, it's difficult to, to handle it because you don't want to be insensitive to this guy. You know, he obviously, you know, was elected by the voters of Pennsylvania, you know, regardless of what they thought of, of his uh, detriments or challenges when it came to his health. But there's certain things that you have to be able to do in order to function as, as a U.S. senator. You have to be able to understand what's going on around you. You have to be able to understand what you're voting on. You know, you made reference to Dianne Feinstein. That's, I mean, 
it's really disturbing to me. I look, I I served uh, as a as a Senate staffer back in the day. I mean, it's a long time ago uh, when Strom Thurmond, of all people, was still around in the Senate, and it was assumed that you know his chief of staff would essentially be the person voting on his behalf on every single question that was in front of the Senate body. And that's just not something that withstands, uh, you know, the the modern experience when it comes to a, a senator uh, who has to respond to all these different questions when it comes to their, you know, the press and everything else. Do you believe that he's going to be in a position where he's going to have to resign, step down, step away, just given the challenges of, uh, you know, the, the very real medical issues that he's facing? And let's not forget that you have a direct connection to one of the greatest senators in our history who was a lion and would never – he would immediately worry if he if he uh, weren't up to the task. So I think this is very fair to be talking about, you know, Senator John McCain. But, you know, but I, I think it's something that, that he, he hated. And I, I will just say – I will just say I, I appreciate you bringing that up because he hated the idea that he would be not up to the task – of being able to make a determination on a vote. And that was the point where he said, you know, I, I if if I can't make a determination on this, then I can't be in this office. But I'll uh, let let you continue. No, that's exactly what I uh, he's the art stick. And and the problem is that I can't know enough to tell you I don't have enough facts yet. I, I haven't examined them. I, I don't know what's going on in that hospital. I don't know why they're hospitalizing him. But I can tell you, it's whatever. however the, the Democrats try to spin this, it's not like let's go in here and get him out of here, let him get, get back to work. I want you to know when you're hospitalized for depression, it's a big deal. And you don't know how long that's going to take. And, and, of course, we wish him the best. But, you know, I already was worried because of the stroke. I mean, I was already worried because of the heart, and now we have this. I was already wondering before this what 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 level of uh, of function he had. You know, my wife uh, came up to me, uh, you know, the other day when we were sort of following this, and she said, "You know, I can't believe that people who are around this person, around John Fetterman, would have put him forward if they had any doubts about his able uh, ability to." function in this environment. Unfortunately, we are now in a, in a state, and I, you know, I wish we weren't, Dr. Siegel, where so many p- different people are put forward regardless of their capability to actually function simply because they will fill a seat on behalf of a partisan interest. And, you know, I, I feel like, you know, look, you know, maybe maybe someone else will be named this seat. Maybe we'll be dealing with a different Democrat there, you know, in the in the next couple of months. But it is kind of sad to reach this situation in American life where we just assume that, you know, the most the thing that takes priority above all is that partisan interest. And by the way, there's a counter side to this, Ben. You know, when Larry Hogan was elected governor of Maryland, he was actually being treated with chemotherapy for a blood cancer, and he got mm-hmm. better, by the way. But he was receiving it. I went to interview him. He had the bag hanging right in the, in the right there in the in his office, and you know he he was a he was a 
an inspiration. But he was performing the, the, the job of governor, no doubt about it. And so it doesn't mean that somebody with a health issue can't serve. It's a question of what degree, what degree the impairment is. And I think you were starting to hint to what you want me to talk about next is the president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you anticipated my next question. Yes, go ahead. Well, I mean, because I don't, I, I don't think that physical was very convincing. It was flowery, but the same question came up that I had had last year. I don't want to flatter myself and think it's because I'm the one who has brought this up repeatedly, but that stiff gate <laughs> worries me. And that, well, here's how they addressed the stiff gate, how O'Connor addressed the stiff gate. He said he's got peripheral neuropathy, which means his feet are tingling. Can that affect the gait, Ben? Yes. He says he's got the, he said he has arthritis in his spine. Could that affect the gait? Yes. But here's the thing. He said that he ruled that they ruled out serious diagnoses using the physical exam. Well, that's what we used to do in the 1980s before we had an MRI. And if, you know, people have written to me and said, well, could he have have an MRI because of that pacemaker? Usually the answer is yes, by the way. But whether it's an MRI or a CAT scan, he could have had upstairs imaging and a, and a full not, neuropsychiatric te- neuropsychological testing, a cognitive test, a Montreal uh, cognitive test, the way that President Trump took it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no evidence that any of that was done. Dr. Siegel, I know and I you know, I talk to a lot of people who, uh, thankfully, are not in my industry, who are just, you know, random folks who come up to me on the street. And the number one question that they raise to me over and over again is some version of, is this guy going to last? Is he going to make it? Is, is you know, I'm, I'm you know, uh, questioning the idea that this is going to be a president who has the capability to last through this. And... You know, whenever I see something like this come across, you know, with these types of of numbers and these types of spin, it makes me doubt it. You know, I I feel like on a certain level, it's you know, look, he's he's hanging on there. You know, uh, I'm I'm not seeing the kind of you know uh, necessarily you know uh, issues that would you know lead to an expectation that he's about to depart the stage. But unfortunately, when these things come across, they make me doubt more and more. How should I respond to the people who come up to me and say, you know, I see you on Fox. I see you talking to Dr. Mark Siegel. I see you, you know, talking to Brett and all that kind of thing. Is this guy going to be able to last out even his first term? Well, I, I I think that a lot of the things in that physical would indicate that he probably can make it through the first term because his atrial, his heart seems to be stable, and whatever's going on upstairs, which I think is again I haven't examined him, but it seems to be a, a gradual deterioration. I mean, him saying that you know his son died in Iraq or can't you know underestimating the amount that a certain amount of, of fentanyl kills by you know by i mean saying it kills a thousand or or two thousand and it's actually four billion the amount he was talking about mm-hmm. or or forgetting who he's talking to and forgetting everyone's name or, or or addressing a congressperson who died i mean all of that stuff is very very concerning 
but it, 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 I, I don't think in terms of acute medical problems that, that he won't that he won't there's nothing I'm seeing right now that makes me think he won't survive the term. I think the real question is is he running again and it, by all it, by all senses we have it, is that he's planning on it and the American yeah. public has weighed in on this and has said they don't think he should that he's too old but I don't actually think he's too old. I'm more concerned about fitness than age. I don't think they're the same thing. Yeah. yeah. You know and that's the thing that I think is so uh, prominent in this discussion it's like you know, it's it's less about the age. It's more about the confidence in the person, you know, to be able to adjudicate all the different things that are going on around them. And, and you know, frankly, I, I just don't have that confidence in this individual. And I think that there are a lot of Americans, uh, you know, who share that concern. Dr. Mark Siegel, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Ben, great to be on with you, and uh, and I really, really enjoy especially bringing up the memory of a great Senator John McCain. So, great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always happy to talk about the old man. He, uh, uh, he uh, kicked my ass in so many different ways, and I miss him very much. Uh, and thank you so much, Mark, for uh, taking the time to join me. Uh, we are talking today about a number of different issues that are confronting us as Americans across the country. Happy to be in Guy Benson's uh, seat at the moment. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back with more right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. And we're back on the Guy Benson Show. Happy to be in his seat. I'm Ben Dominich. Guest hosting for him today. Look, I'm concerned about a lot of different things that are going on in America today, but one of the things that I think is really a impressive uh, result of the past, you know, uh, period when it comes to creative is uh, the HBO series The Last of Us, which has been dominating the conversation online and when it comes to, uh, you know, critical appreciation over the past uh, several weeks, The Last of Us is based on a video game that I was happy to play when it came out originally. It's very chilling. Um, it's uh, challenging in a lot of different ways in terms of your interpretation of uh, moral clarity, ethics, and the like. And it's also this new kind of precedent when it comes to the appreciation of video game content within the context of uh, the streaming world. So many different entities have tried to turn video games into uh, Hollywood material. I mean, come on. You know, you're not going to make a great movie out of Battleship, but they tried. One of the things that I think is really interesting, though, about this is that it's something that is challenging a lot of different people when it comes to their interpretation of a zombie-like mythos. It's not a zombie show. Uh, let's get that right. I mean, you know, the, the Last of Us is not about zombies. It has infected sort of individuals who are, you know, driven by a, a lot of different motivations that don't have to do with eating other people. And so I think that one of the things that is you know, a, a little bit sloppy about the way it's been talked about is including the Hollywood Reporter, putting it on its front page, on its, uh, you know, front of the magazine as a zombie show. It's more interesting than that for a lot of different reasons. But one of the things that I think is going to be interesting is that 
if you played the game, as I did, as a lot of Americans did, you know how this first season is going to end. It's a season that's being made by uh, you know a former roommate of Ted Cruz, Craig Mazin, who also made uh, the Chernobyl series for HBO. He is doing it with the uh, main writer of uh, the Last of Us video game uh, series, Craig Matt, uh, who is uh, Neil Druckmann, uh, who has his own sort of approach to this. They've changed a number of different things, but my assumption is they are not going to change the main uh, element of uh, how this story plays out and its ultimate conclusion. If that is the case, I think that there are going to be a lot of Americans who are very frustrated, who are very disappointed, who are going to have to wrestle with the ramifications of uh, the decision that is made by major characters. And I really welcome that because I think there's so many different shows, uh, you know, across all these different networks where there are not hard choices made and there are not difficult things that people have to wrestle with. This show could be very much different in terms of that. And I am looking forward to dealing with all of my friends who are very upset that I told them to watch this and are now very mad at me. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. We will be back with more right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. And we are back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host for today, Ben Dominich. Happy to be talking to you about all the different issues that are so important in our nation today. And, of course, one of those issues that is so important is the plight of the lonely cat lady, namely Chelsea Handler, who had the opportunity to host The Daily Show this week. Let's hear it from Chelsea. This is a day in the life of a childless woman. I wake up at 6 a.m. I remember that I have no kids to take to school, so I take an edible and go back to sleep. I wake up at 12.30 p.m. and get ready for a busy day of doing whatever the f*** I feel like. I put on my most impractical and stylish shoes since I won't be chasing a child around the grocery store. I go to my fave spot in Paris to grab a croissant. I do a meditation sesh on the plane since I have no screaming kids, allowing me all the time in the world to become enlightened. The weightlessness of my existence has granted me superhuman powers. I teleport myself back home. Then I get ready for a night out with whatever hot guy I met on Raya that morning. I call up the babysitter and tell her that I don't need her since I still don't have kids. Now it's time for a workout, so I hit Mount Everest for a quick climb. I invent a time machine, go back in time, and kill Hitler. Freeze, you bastard! It's amazing what you can do when you have this much free time. And that's a day in the life of a childless woman. You know, uh, Chelsea Handler is 
a deeply sad woman. Uh, she's someone who has made that clear over the course of her career in a lot of different respects. Um, she's also someone who used to be in love, deeply in love, with um, a comedian, Joy, Joe Coy. Uh, she was very open about that, uh, and fortunately it did not work out. She is advocating for this ridiculous assessment of her life clearly as a self-indictment. I mean, it's not, you know, like she actually believes that this is true of single women across the country. But it's something that she is putting forward because, you know, this is what uh, the American culture basically says about single women. You know, you can have it all. As soon as you just decide to not have any kids, everything is wonderful for you and it's going to work out just great. Unfortunately, from my perspective, there's a lot of people who are out there on the American right who are basically bolstering the type of ridiculous assumptions about singlehood that Chelsea Handler was indicating there. Cut 37. We're effectively run in this country via the Democrats, via, via our corporate oligarchs, by a bunch of childless cat ladies who are miserable at their own lives and the choices that they've made, and so they want to make the rest of the country miserable too. And it's just a basic fact. You look at Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, AOC, the entire future of the Democrats is controlled by people without children. And how does it make any sense that we've turned our country over to people who don't really have a direct stake in it? That was J.D. Vance, now senator from Ohio. I, I actually don't disagree with his assessment of, you know, how much, you know, having so many different people in the leadership class who don't have kids is a damaging element of American society. But I would also turn around and basically say that's something that is also an indictment of the kind of culture that has been created by uh, our approach to American masculinity. I mean, if you had men who were of the kind of you know marital material, people who were able to stand up on their own two feet and you know be people who could lead a household, you know direct the way forward, you know be you know not just people who are hanging on, but people who are guiding the path, then I think that you would have a lot of these you know left of center women who would be perfectly happy to be you know with men like that. Unfortunately, I think that's just not the case. I think that there are a lot of men who unfortunately have gone along with this ludicrous, abhorrent, you know, feminist lifestyle that basically says, you know, this is all just about choices. You can do whatever you want. Men need the same kind of qualifications in their life as anybody else. They need the kind of <laughs> leadership that says you can't just do whatever you want. You can't just be whatever you want. You have to be responsible. You have to be you know, cognizant of the people who are around you. You can't just do the things that are of a priority to you and ignore the priorities of everyone else. Unfortunately, I think that we are really living through a period where American men have failed to live up to their obligations. They've failed to live up 
to the requirements of those around them. They failed to be the kind of men that women can look up to. Look, I mean, am I going to put Chelsea Handler on a pedestal? Of course not. But there's a whole aspect of this that is really disturbing to me that is going on within the American right that needs to be denounced and rejected. I listen to people like J.D. Vance. I listen to people like Josh Hawley. I listen to people like Taylor Schilling, who runs the ridiculously named American Principles Project, as if American Principles involved you know, all sorts of misogyny. I listen to uh, Jesse Kelly, who is an aggressively misogynist comedian uh, in a lot of different respects. I listen to Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire. All of them, in various respects, emulate an idea of American masculinity which rejects any of the kind of biblical assumptions about the way that we ought to respect women. And let me be clear about this. There are enormous indications within the Bible of the way that women ought to be respected as individuals and as singles. You know, in the in the Catholic Church, you have nuns. In the non-Catholic Church, you have single women who devote their lives frequently to the kind of appreciation that we all want to see within the American church. People who are devoting themselves to the care of those who are young, of those who are in need, people who are devoting themselves to ministry through the you know uh, the service of music, the service of of those around them, taking care of those who need it, and Saint Paul himself, First Corinthians obviously, you know wrote very explicitly about the appreciation of women as being you know people who are occasionally called to singleness, essentially saying you shouldn't sacrifice your principles in order to be married just because society or the culture of the church tells you that you ought to be married. I think that's really important because I think that there's so many women out there, including people who work at this network, who people who are friends of mine, people who are very active within uh, their communities who, you know, by dint of, nature or the challenges of their life were not able to find a companion who they would spend the rest of their life with. Do they regret this? Of course they do. They would much rather be married. They would much rather not be categorized as cat ladies or the like. But do they have something worthwhile to offer to us all? Of course they do. That's very clear. It's clear in scripture. It's clear in our lives. And the people who denigrate that idea and engage in this ridiculous performative artistry of saying that only women who follow this particular path are of any worth, they're the ones who should be looking in the mirror and asking themselves whether what they're engaged in is truly good, helpful, and holy or whether it is sinful, whether it is wrong, 
and whether it undermines the entirety of any kind of faithful approach to the way we ought to live. I cannot stand these faux Christians, and I do mean that when I say this, faux Christians who pretend to go out there and say, we are going to judge women if they have not had the good fortune to find a man to marry. They are obnoxious, they're abhorrent, they're wrong, they're sinful, and they should repent. And I mean that. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show, which normally doesn't engage in the kind of ridiculous and over-the-top assessment of people based on their spirituality that I just did. But I actually, you know, believe that. So that's why I shared it with you all. We'll be back with more right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. And we're back on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Ben Dominich. Happy to be hosting from Washington, D.C. This uh, serious uh, moment in terms of our history and all sorts of different serious things to talk about. I'm not going to do that in our last segment because I think that there are other hilarious things to be talking about. And one of those is obviously this most recent uh, South Park episode that went after uh, one uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle in very aggressive ways, mocking them in all manner of approaches. I found it incredibly entertaining. I'm glad that South Park has that kind of approach, but... One of the things that was very, uh, you know, apparent during the the course of this episode was uh, their willingness to acknowledge that we're probably going to get sued by these people. And look, you know, uh, obviously, Prince Harry, Meghan Markle have made themselves known in terms of being very litigious, uh, going after all the different people who have wronged them in various respects. But I think that, you know, they really are indicative of a type of celebrity that I think is in its decline. Uh, The American people just, we just don't have this appetite for these types of celebrities, people who, you know, really want to be, you know, judged in uh, all manner by, you know, uh, their association with things like the royal family and being able to, Go after anybody who uh, you know doubts their sincerity, their authenticity, and the like. I am very glad to see South Park weigh into this, uh, and I hope that we will see uh, more litigiousness from uh, uh, Meghan Markle and from Prince Harry, uh, because that's very in keeping with their approach to these types of criticisms. Hey, look, I am interested in a lot of things that are happening in the world uh, right now. And one of the things that is happening, obviously, is the 2024 stakes. People are starting to jump into this in a more aggressive way. We might see a number of different candidates join over the coming weeks. I am going to be uh, down in South Carolina and talking to a lot of different people about the Nikki Haley attempt to uh, go into these presidential stakes. 
we also have uh, my other colleagues at The Spectator who are going to be covering things in Iowa and Wisconsin and uh, New Hampshire and the like. Uh, people who are going to be, you know, putting down their various stakes and trying to make themselves known. One thing that I think is really important, though, to respect about this process is that Americans make these decisions about who they would like to lead them based not on our national level analysis, but on their own priorities. I remember going back and visiting the different people who uh, in the 2020 cycle uh, were going to be making a big decision about whether Joe Biden was going to be the nominee or not in South Carolina. I went back to my old address that I grew up at uh, from the age of two to nine uh, and talked to the current homeowner there. It was interesting. Uh, He was a Pete Buttigieg fan. Uh, they do exist. And he basically said that he thought that someone like Mayor Pete would be able to return the country to normalcy, calm down the culture war, and get back to things like infrastructure reform, uh, fiscal reform, and the like. Unfortunately, he was wrong, obviously. Uh, Mayor Pete went down to defeat in South Carolina very quickly after that. But I do think that we're experiencing a situation right now in America where a lot of people would like to see something like what, uh, you know, the the homeowner who occupies my old childhood house really would like to see, namely a calming down, something that would release a lot of the pressure, make things more okay in terms of the way that we relate to each other. Unfortunately, I think that's not going to be the case When it comes to 2024, we are in the midst of a culture war that animates everyone on the right, everyone on the left, everyone in the media. And uh, I think that that's something that's going to be dominant. It's going to crowd out any of the other discussions that we ought to be having about our fiscal future, about our challenges that we see around the world. And I think that that's going to be something that will you know, set the nation back in a lot of different respects. We'll see what comes out of this. Nikki Haley has jumped in. We can expect that there are a lot of other folks who are going to jump in shortly. But I don't necessarily believe that any of them are going to be able to connect with the American people in a way that will convince them that their priorities match up with the needs that we have right now unless they are willing to engage on these types of culture war issues in a way that is designed to end these fights, to move on from them, to not have them dominate the field when it comes to politics. Until that happens, I think we are stuck in the same reality that we've been in for almost a decade, where the culture war, even if you don't care about it, it cares about you. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to The Guy Benson Show, which I've been happy to host today. It's always a pleasure to host from Guy Benson's seat. He's someone who has a very refined, cognizant, and uh, cultured view of American politics. I apologize for the fact that I have a more blunt, angry, populist approach, but it's always 
a nice and uh, enjoyable experience to be able to sit in his chair, to talk to you all, and to be able to share my thoughts. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to The Guy Benson Show. We'll be back on Monday with more. Until then. Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.